This is The Great Composers from member-supported Colorado Public Radio and CPR Classical. Sergei Rachmaninoff wraps up his compositional career by creating what I feel is his most comprehensive, most brilliant composition yet. He writes a musical retrospective of his life. Sergei Rachmaninoff has written some of the most gorgeous orchestral pieces ever. He's also had some of the greatest failures in music. And his personal story is one of harrowing escapes and crippling self-doubt. And he pulls all of that together with his symphonic dances, which premiered two years before he passed away. Sergei Rachmaninoff's personal story leading up to the symphonic dances, the triumphs, and the sufferings is a fascinating one. Welcome to the Great Composer series on Rachmaninoff from CPR Classical and Colorado Public Radio. I'm host Carla Walker with conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill. Scott, the final episode, the final scenes in Rachmaninoff's life. And the story starts with Rachmaninoff completely down and out. We left off last episode on Christmas Eve, and the Rachmaninoffs have fled Russia in an open sleigh. Right, with just the clothes on their back, the money in their pockets, and a briefcase with a few precious scores and a music sketchbook. They left under the guise of Rachmaninoff performing in Stockholm, Sweden, but the truth is they never meant to return. It's 1917. Rachmaninoff is 44 years old. He's written some of his greatest music to date, the second and third piano concertos and the second symphony. But none of those royalties from those great pieces will follow him because Russia hadn't updated their copyright laws yet. So he needs to figure out something fast. Yeah, and the fastest way for him to earn money was playing concerts, being a pianist. So that's what he did all over Scandinavia for several months. But while he's on this piano tour, he gets several offers from the U.S. Please, come be the conductor of the Boston Symphony. No, we want you to be the permanent conductor of the Cincinnati Symphony. But he turns all of them down. Why? To focus on being a pianist. A friend back in Russia had held his hands and told him, Sergei, remember, the capital is in your hands, meaning your hands are money. Be a pianist. Even later, the newspapers would refer to Rachmaninoff and his million-dollar hands. Yep, and within the year, he moved his family to New York and began performing upwards of 60 to 70 concerts a year because that was the surest way to provide for his family. Historic recording of Rachmaninoff playing his own C-sharp minor prelude. We talked about that piece in the first episode of this series, and it was the piece that everyone wanted to hear in those 60 to 70 concerts that he gave every year. Scott, that's a lot of concerts to play every year, all that traveling, all that practicing. Yeah, practicing. Actually, he only practiced about three hours a day, which blows my mind. I mean, most professional pianists I know practice like six to eight hours every day. And I'm amazed that he became one of the greatest pianists of his time with so little practice. I mean, in some ways, that's genius. But there's a reason he didn't practice so much. 
He talked about how his fingers would bruise. Yeah, there's evidence he had something called Marfan syndrome, which accounted for him being so tall, such large hands. And yes, one of the other side effects was he would bruise easily. But he tried to hide it. A friend saw his hands once and expressed concern about them. But Rachmaninoff said, shh, don't tell anyone. Take away from me these concerts and it will be the end of me. Well, but the title of the series, Scott, is The Great Composers, Not the Great Pianists. We think of Rachmaninoff as a composer, but he was equally or more one of the great concert pianists of his time. Yeah, he came to love performing on piano so much, he would play through incredible back pain, also caused by Marfan syndrome. One concert was so bad, he couldn't even stand to bow, Mm -hmm. but he kept playing you know, both his own compositions, but also composers like Chopin, Liszt, Beethoven. Mostly 19th century romantics. Let's take a listen to an actual recording of Rachmaninoff playing Franz Liszt. recording of Sergei Rachmaninoff playing Franz Liszt. But Scott, what about composing? I mean, Rachmaninoff has come off a really fruitful couple of decades writing his big pieces. Yeah, but now almost nothing. I mean, for about 10 years, Rachmaninoff didn't write anything new. 10 years. Why? What's going on here? I think there are a few reasons he stopped composing. The first was Truth is, it's tougher to make a living as a composer. Being a concert pianist solved his immediate financial needs. But it also has to do with the fact of him leaving his home. I mean, friends asked him about his composing so little, and he said, When I left Russia, I left behind me my desire to compose. In losing my country, I lost myself also. For the exile whose musical roots have been annihilated... There remains no desire for self-expression. That Russian soil thing again. His homeland was so important to him. But he also had health issues. You were just talking about Marfan syndrome. We've talked a lot about his depression, which Mm -hmm. we think crippled his compositional efforts in the past. And on top of all of that, he was diagnosed with something called facial neuralgia, which gave him terrible headaches. Yeah, so he could sit up to play piano, wasn't so bad, but leaning over a score to compose caused his headaches to be even worse. Do you think he missed composing? Oh my gosh, yes. It's just that his demanding concert schedule and the lack of quiet simply didn't afford that. He even said, I can't hunt three hairs at once. Meaning composing being a concert pianist, and conducting. Right, but finally, in 1926, nearly 10 years after arriving in the U.S., he'd made enough money so he could take off a year to compose again. His fourth piano concerto. From Rachmaninoff's fourth piano concerto, it's certainly not as familiar as his second or third piano concerto. 
In fact, I would even venture to say that most people probably don't even know that Rachmaninoff wrote a fourth piano concerto. Yeah, and honestly, it's not his best. And critics at the premiere basically butchered it. But at this stage in his life, Rachmaninoff started to have some perspective on criticism. Yeah, because criticism used to be a dagger for Rachmaninoff. Did age bring thicker skin? Sure. I mean, he starts to ignore whatever the latest critiques happen to say, pointing out that, if you remember, there were those who hated his second piano concerto until he wrote his third. Then they'd admit that the second was good, but they hated the third <laughs> until he writes his fourth. And now they're admitting that the third was good, but now they hate the fourth. <laughs> so, so if he'd written a fifth, that maybe we would all love and know the fourth. <laughs> right, maybe. Whatever the case, he withdrew the piece after the premiere, but he didn't just throw it away. He liked it enough that he would eventually revise it twice to become what it is today. Rachmaninoff's fourth piano concerto, rejected by critics and the public. And Scott, even though you said Rachmaninoff didn't seem to care so much about what people thought anymore, he basically goes silent again as a composer. Yeah, for about another eight years. I mean, not completely. I mean, there there's a smattering of pieces in those eight years, but most of them are arrangements of pieces by other composers. Then, finally, he gets the urge to compose again. He just needs the right place. To set the scene, it's the mid-1930s. Rachmaninoff has finally found some financial stability. He had lost all of his money leaving Russia in 1917, earned it back, lost more money after the stock market crash of 1929, had to start over financially again, and now in the mid-1930s, those million-dollar hands have provided him new comfort. And so he decides to build a country estate in Switzerland. Modeled after the Ivanovka estate back in the good old days in Russia. Finally, a place he can truly get the solitude he needs to compose. And it's here in Switzerland that Rachmaninoff writes his next great masterpiece, where he takes someone else's theme and turns it into a glorious tour de force. So here's the original little theme that he worked with. It's by Niccolo Paganini. And Rachmaninoff turns that little theme into this. He writes 24 variations based on this one theme, but he also weaves in what's become kind of his trademark, the dies irae. Now remember it. And when he plays it, the piano plays nothing but. What I love about it is while you hear that from the piano, the strings in the bassoon are playing the Paganini.
The variation number seven from Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini by Sergei Rachmaninoff. And that's a great spot. But my favorite spot, and I think everyone's favorite spot, comes a little later on in the piece when Rachmaninoff gives us what we love about Rachmaninoff. Yeah, I know the spot you're talking about. Pure genius. Rachmaninoff takes the original theme by Paganini and he literally flips it upside down. Like he takes the page and turns it upside down. Yeah. So now you get... And what he writes is... So beautiful. And literally, he turns the piece on its head as well. Up until now, sometimes the piece has been fiery, sometimes it's been brooding. But now we get one of those great melodies that only Rachmaninoff could write. The 18th variation from the Rhapsody on the Theme of Paganini by Sergei Rachmaninoff, a huge hit with audiences from the premiere and a hit as well today. Yeah, audiences, yes. But at the premiere, there were still naysayers among the critics, and the things they wrote about his compositions in general were pretty brutal and even demeaning. All right, give some examples. Well, one reviewer called his music a great deal of noise about very little indeed, and one suspects that a second hearing of it would be an indescribable bore. <laughs> Another critic said his music was plush, full of those overstuffed melodies, the drugged lyricism. I think that this might really surprise people because most of us who love classical music we love Rachmaninoff's right. music. I think it's surprising to find out how savagely he was criticized. Yeah, and it didn't stop there. The critics even attacked the people who loved his music, his yes. audience, <laughs> with snarky comments. I remember one where he said, again, the Puritan of pianists was by Puritans applauded. Puritan here meaning simple, simple-minded. Yeah, clearly they resented Rachmaninoff's popularity. They thought New contemporary composers like Schoenberg, Berg, or Webern deserved greater attention. Instead, the schmaltzy guy Rachmaninoff's getting all the love. But he seems to sort of shrug it off. He's still playing a ton of concerts every year. And it's only two years until he writes his next symphony, his third symphony. And then a couple of years after that, the piece which you, Scott, think is his magnum opus. Yeah, it's the culmination of his life in music. He's had the highest of highs and lowest of lows. He's escaped revolutions and wars. And he reflects on all of those experiences and his final masterpiece, The Symphonic Dances. He begins with a precious remnant of the Russia he loved. A theme, in fact, by someone else, by Rimsky-Korsakov. He took it with him when he fled the Bolshevik Revolution back in 1917. Now, one of the most important musical ideas in Rimsky's opera, The Golden Cockerel, sounds like this. Three notes, you might think, well, that could come from anything. But there's another spot where a theme really exotic goes... 
Rachmaninoff turns that into... Then that three-note theme that we had to start takes off. So you heard how he took that basic three-note idea and by repeating it and changing shapes a little bit creates an entire theme. Well, now what he does is he takes that basic idea and plays it backwards, slows it down to create a beautiful second theme. It's got this lovely clarinet accompaniment. Is that a saxophone I hear? Yes. Think of it as the little American touch in this piece. <laughs> Turns out, after moving to America, Rachmaninoff fell in love with jazz. Which is another part of his life story that he writes into his symphonic dances. What else should we know about this piece? Well, one thing I perhaps love most is that he doesn't hide from those low moments in his life. In fact, he confronts even the most painful of his memories, the failure of his first symphony. He takes the opening idea of that first symphony but now he transforms it into a peaceful, cathartic theme complete with a starry background in the piano, bells, and harps. It's almost like he's saying, I'm not ashamed. My music will be spoken without apology. I am at peace with this. Conclusion to the opening movement of Rachmaninoff's Symphonic Dances. Second movement, I think, is especially poignant because he nods to his beloved mentor and idol. That would be Tchaikovsky. So if you think about it, the one genre that Tchaikovsky excelled in, but Rachmaninoff never wrote, was ballet. Oh, yeah. But he wanted to. In fact, he was working on a ballet with a famous choreographer who died before the project was complete. So the ballet never materialized, but Rachmaninoff had already written some of the music, including a waltz, which he put into his second movement, which you hear here. ¶¶ 
Rachmaninoff tipping his hat to his mentor Tchaikovsky with a waltz in the symphonic dances. Yeah. Now, we've talked about how Rachmaninoff quotes several of his favorite pieces from throughout his career all through the symphonic dances. But my favorite may be in the finale. I mean, Rachmaninoff incorporates music from one of his happiest moments back in Russia, the premiere of his beloved all-night vigil. The ninth movement of the vigil tells of the resurrection of Christ. So Rachmaninoff takes this solemn chorale When he puts it in the symphonic dances, he turns that solemn theme into this like dance, like jazzy, jaunty theme. And even the Alleluia in the chorale was Alleluia, Alleluia. But again, when it goes into the symphonic dances, even that has a dance feel to it. And this theme that represents resurrection battles it out with his old trademark, the Dies Irae, which even here has a dance feel. like a battle between death and resurrection, but even the Dies Irae, I feel, has a dance-like triumphant character. This isn't death as fear and desolation. I hear this as death as a victorious arrival in heaven. Finale to Rachmaninoff's Symphonic Dance is a piece that caps off his extraordinary career, where he wrote some of the most beloved music that exists today, endured some of the harshest criticism for that music, dazzled the world as a pianist with his million-dollar hands, and showed us resilience through crippling depression. Scott, this is the final episode of our look at Rachmaninoff for the Great Composers, So looking back, what do you think made Rachmaninoff a great composer? Where to begin, right? (laughs) (laughs) But first and foremost, I think art is expression, and nobody else was as capable of expressing musical ideas that have resonated with so many people. It's so immediate, so intuitive. I mean, he was a quiet, reserved man, but he felt things so deeply. And when I hear his music, I feel like I'm feeling the same thing. When you think about all the composers who had that gift to create music that resonates so deeply, so naturally, Rachmaninoff may be the single greatest ever.
There is no denying the beauty in these melodies, but even in 1954, Scott, the Grove Dictionary of Music, which is the Bible of classical music biographies, said this about Rachmaninoff, quote, monotonous in texture, which consists in essence mainly of artificial and gushing tunes. It went on to say that Rachmaninoff's popularity is not likely to last. <laughs> the joke's on that writer, right? <laughs> you know, I think it boils down to the critics were criticizing him for not being like other composers of the day who wrote atonal music. But Rachmaninoff knew that. He even said, I feel like a ghost wandering in a world grown alien. I cannot cast out the old way of writing and I cannot acquire the new. I have made an intense effort to feel the musical manner of today but it will not come to me. But what I love was he was himself, and that is all we can truly ask of any composer. Yeah. As Shakespeare wrote, to thine own self be true. So he wrote music like this, whether the critics liked it or not. True to himself, speaking in his own voice, he shaped musical tastes of audiences around the world, both during his lifetime and today. But to play devil's advocate just for a moment, he was the end of the line in terms of style. He kept writing in a romantic style nearly 20 years after most other composers had moved on. And some people will say that to be a great composer, you have to have influence on other composers. Well, he may not have had a huge influence on the other composers of his generation, but ask some leading composers of today, like John Corleano, Richard Danielport, even John Adams, and they'll tell you what a great impact Rachmaninoff has had on their work. There's music, contemporary music, that sounds like Rachmaninoff by John Carliano, the red violin. This is what I think is so interesting about Rachmaninoff, this criticism, because he's so polarizing as a composer. On the one hand, you have critics, even the Grove Dictionary of Music, who ripped his music to shreds. But meanwhile, audiences love Rachmaninoff. And the audiences are right. <laughs> and that's why we chose Rachmaninoff for this great composer series. No, he didn't write the number of pieces that Mozart did. He didn't change the musical landscape like Beethoven. But his melodies endure because they are exactly what people then and people now need. You think about when Rachmaninoff lived, two Russian revolutions, two world wars. The world was full of weary people and what they needed was comfort. And that's what Rachmaninoff's music gave them then and still gives people today.
of his life, Rachmaninoff finally started biting back at the critics who complained that Rachmaninoff couldn't or wouldn't write modern music. And he said, Today's composers think rather than feel. They have not the capacity to exult. They meditate, they protest, analyze, reason, calculate, and brood. But they do not exult. Exalt meaning rejoice or bring joy. And exaltation is exactly what Rachmaninoff is so good at. great example of exaltation at its best, the 18th variation from the Rhapsody on a theme of Paganini. We should say that the scathing 1954 biography and the Grove Music Dictionary, it has since been changed, oh which shows how Rachmaninoff's history is still being written today. In Russia, they refer to it as the rehabilitation of Rachmaninoff's legacy. In 1986, the Moscow Conservatory named a small performance hall after Rachmaninoff, and now there's a statue near where Rachmaninoff was born. But, Scott, that statue just went up in 2009. Yeah, better late than never, right? <laughs> after he fled Russia and criticized the killing and torture by what he called Stalin and his bullies, his music was actually banned and his name was denigrated by the Soviets. Rachmaninoff never lost his love of Russia, and the Soviet smear campaign against him devastated him. He even said, The whole world is open to me, and success awaits me everywhere. Only one place is closed to me, and that is my own country, Russia. Yeah, I think he had a hole in his heart about his Russia right up until the very end. Which brings us to Rachmaninoff's final days. After this fascinating look through Rachmaninoff's life and music, there is a quiet ending to this story. Rachmaninoff played this piece, Chopin's Funeral March, in his last concert as a pianist. He soon became so ill, he had to cancel his remaining concerts. He knew it was the end. And when he realized he couldn't play anymore, he literally looked at his hands and said, my dear hands, farewell, my poor hands. Rachmaninoff died not long after. He died of cancer in 1943 at his home in Hollywood, where he was part of a Russian enclave that included composer Igor Stravinsky and pianist Vladimir Horowitz. Yeah, Rachmaninoff always surrounded himself with Russia, so to speak. Russian servants, Russian customs, culture, food. No matter where he lived, I think it's how he helped fill that void in his heart. And I think it's fitting that the very last piece he wrote was an arrangement of the lullaby by his beloved mentor, Tchaikovsky.
Sergei Rachmaninoff playing his own final piece, his own arrangement of Tchaikovsky's lullaby. This quiet, simple tune was Rachmaninoff's farewell. Sergei Rachmaninoff is buried at the top of a little hill in New York State. He was attacked by critics, but lionized by adoring fans. A brilliant pianist and a great composer. For the Great Composer Series on Rachmaninoff from CPR Classical and Colorado Public Radio, I'm Carla Walker. I'm Scott O'Neill. Thanks for listening. Thank you to CPR's contributing members for making this podcast possible. Learn about membership at CPR.org.